The term the New York School is more about a group of designers working in and around New York rather than a strong creative movement. The way we digest information as a culture forces design to evolve. In the Victorian era, when books were the primary modes of communication, design was dense and relied on text. Design evolved from a primarily text-based solution in the 19th century, where text and pattern were the only elements for communication, to solutions in the 1920s. When radio changed that, as we heard information in a more sequential way, typography opened up and became more dynamic. In the 1930s, designs combined text and image, using both the image and typography to tell a story. In the late 40s, the standard ad composition was to show an image, place a slogan below it, and then add copy to support the product. In the 1950s and 60s, New York was the center of advertising and design. Although talented European immigrants who had fled the political climate of totalitarianism in Europe introduced modern design in America in the 1940s, it was nearly a decade before an original American approach to modernist design gained any international prominence, which continued as a dominant force in graphic design until the 70s. In new small boutique advertising agencies, emphasis was placed on creativity rather than on full marketing services. An attempt was made to create more honest, literate, and tasteful appeals to the market audience. An egalitarian society with capitalist values, limited artistic traditions before World War II, and a diverse ethnic heritage engendered an original approach to American modernist design, where European design was often theoretical and highly structured. American design was pragmatic, intuitive, and less formal in its approach to organizing space. A common theme of these designers is a commitment to the modernist ideas of less is more, functionalism, and the use of images and geometric forms to convey a message. The American iteration of this placed importance on the work being egalitarian, open, and direct. Emphasis was placed on the expression of ideas and an open, direct presentation of information. Novelty of technique and originality of concept were much prized in this highly competitive society, and designers sought to solve communications problems while satisfying a need for personal expression. But by the 1950s, television and film had revolutionized our society dramatically, and design responded. Designers began to drop the slogan and turn directly to image-based solutions that didn't rely on words. The image, however, wasn't simply a pretty picture. It needed to communicate an idea and tell the entire story. These designers took advantage of common cultural symbols. They combined them with verbiage to tell a new story, creating a symbiotic relationship between the word and the image. The fused metaphor, as we call it, answered the public's desire to read images rather than text. 
as television and film became the dominant communications media, it was clear that the second half of the 20th century would be the age of images. More than any other American designer, Paul Rand, who had a thorough understanding of the modern movement, especially the works of Paul Cleve, Vasily Kandinsky, and the Cubists, initiated this American approach to modern design. New York City attracted him and other talented individuals, and by the middle of the 20th century, New York had become an incubator for creativity. Rand's strength was in his ability to analyze a message, to reduce it to a symbolic essence and communicate it through dynamic visual form. He would often change or juxtapose ordinary, universally understood signs and symbols to reinterpret meaning and support a message, such as the barbed wire on the 1940 cover of Direction magazine. Rand employed visual and symbolic contrast and used collage and montage as a means to bring concepts, images, textures, and objects into a cohesive whole. The handwritten Christmas tag is a crisp white rectangle that overlaps and contrasts with the stenciled lettering and the torn edges of the title area. The barbed wire that stood in for ribbon on a Christmas present utterly changes the meaning of the red dots below, giving them the subtext of blood, symbolizing the violence of global war. Rand defined design as the integration of form and function for effective communication. And from 1941 until 54, Rand applied his design approach to advertising at the Weintraub Agency, where his collaborations with copywriter Bill Bernbach became a prototype for the art and copy team that worked closely together to create a synergistic visual and verbal solution. Their work presented visual puns and wordplay, supported by Rand's whimsical integration of photography, drawing, and logo, as in the Orbox campaign. This is Paul Rand's cover for a Museum of Modern Art exhibition of how modern art integrates in daily life. He takes the symbol of a paint palette and a paintbrush to read as the art portion. Then he combines them with a fork, turning the paint palette into a plate that symbolizes something we do every day and then elevating it to something special and unique. A complex idea like modern art in daily life is told quickly and surprisingly. After leaving the agency, Rand became an independent designer, more involved in trademark and corporate design. His book, Thoughts on Design, which includes over 80 examples of his work, inspired a generation of designers. To achieve the design on the cover, Rand placed an abacus on a photosensitive paper in a darkroom, exposing it a number of times, which was an experimental technique not unlike Laszlo Maholi Naj's photograms at the Bauhaus School. The result is a new perception of the abacus. This ancient math tool becomes a metaphor for the design process, how we move elements around until a solution is reached. Paul Rand's cover for a book on Pablo Picasso takes the artistic personality of Picasso's brush strokes and integrates a portrait of him into the composition. This creates a double meaning for the title, a portrait of the artist and a portrait of his work. 
Much of Rand's work used a clever twist on a common image. In this ad for women's facial oil, Rand combines photographs with age-associated shapes. The baby rattle, hand mirror, and droplet quickly and simply suggest the concern for a lifetime of smooth skin. The organic clown face on a field of green combined with the geometric red peekaboo lettering create contrast and add a sense of holiday playfulness and mischief to the AIGA poster from 1968. The upside to this approach was a fast read. The fast read that provided a sense of delight and positive connection to the brand or product. Symbols and metaphorical images are strong ways to telegraph an idea. A symbol of a heart is fairly universal, and it's faster to read than words. Designers like Shermayev used the power of symbols as a technique to use images in place of complex verbiage. The initial contribution of Ivan Shermayev, Thomas Geismar, and initially Robert Brownjohn to American graphic design sprang from a strong aesthetic background and an understanding of the major ideas of European modern art, which had been reinforced by their contacts with architect teacher Serge Shermayev, who was Ivan Shermayev's father, Laszlo Moholy Nash, with whom Brown John had studied painting and design, and Alvin Lustig, with whom Ivan Shermayev had worked as an assistant, a communicative immediacy a strong sense of form, and a vitality and freshness characterized their work in the early months of the partnership. Solutions were determined by the needs of the client, and design problems were characterized by inventive and symbolic manipulation of visual forms, including letter forms and typography. Images and symbols were combined with a surreal sense of dislocation to convey the essence of the subject on book jackets and posters, such as this cover of Bertrand Russell's Common Sense and Nuclear Warfare, on which the atomic blast becomes a visual metaphor for the brain. In 1960, Brown John left the partnership and the firm changed its name to Shermayef and Geismar. The partners continued to play a major role in advertising and corporate identity. Shermayef and Geismar designed a series of covers for architectural and engineering news using the fused metaphor approach. Like Danziger's American painting cover, the issue for the American Institute of Architects in Washington, D.C., removes any complex background and communicates the main topic which was the gathering of the AIA in Washington, with a simple flag mounted on an architect's drafting pencil. Their covers for Pepsi-Cola World are lively and humorous, asking the viewer to solve the riddle and then providing the answer with a small type for the month of the year. A collection of bottle caps and football play diagrams can only mean Pepsi-Cola and football season. Symbolism and minimalism became a common theme among designers from all parts of the discipline. George Sherney headed the graphic design department of the New York design firm George Nelson & Associates before he opened his own design office in 56. Sherney possessed an ability to capture the essence of a subject and then express it in basic terms that were elegant, to the point, and disarmingly simple.
His visual vocabulary consisted of a variety of techniques, including type, photography, calligraphic brush drawing, and bold, simple shapes cut from colored paper. Regardless of the technique, though, his process of reducing complex content to an elemental graphic symbol remained constant. The tenet in modernism, less is more, makes this ad for the School of Visual Arts just work. Every element, from the image to the typeface, contributes to the idea, the central concept of breaking through an obstacle and leaving it behind. If Cherney had added too many elements, like fussy typography or decorative devices, the message would then be less clear. The program he designed for modern dancer Martha Graham appears to be just random pieces of cut paper shoved together, but a viewer who might be familiar with the dancer's repertoire would recognize it as a classic pose from her 1930s modern dance, Lamentations. Her arms and legs are bent at 90-degree angles, forming perfect symmetry both horizontally and vertically. The irregular nature of the lines and the white shape of the dancer's head that's turned gracefully to the side provide some dynamic asymmetry and interest and keep the overall uh, composition from being too static or fussy. In his exhibition catalog for sculptor Jose de Rivera, Cherney simply communicates the name of the artist, but bends and contorts the photographed text in harmony with Rivera's expansive curves, folds, and twists in his sculptures. Designers also used alternative methods of making images to create a stronger message. We're so used to a world of photographs that it's hard to consider a rough drawing or paper collage as a viable design solution. Saul Bass, though popularized an entire design style around rough lines and choppy collage when he brought the fresh outlook of the New York School with him to Los Angeles. Beneath theory and rules and well beyond technique and jargon, the reason for design is to speak to people in a language that is familiar but also new to entice people to understand an old thing in a new way or to grasp a new thing in an old way. Few would disagree that there's ever been a designer who could do this better than Saul Bass. Bass left his native New York for Hollywood in the mid-40s to find a way to combine his restlessness, his intuitive imagination, and a few years of New York experience working in graphic design into a career. He was heavily influenced by Rand's use of shape and asymmetrical balance, but favored the use of a single dominant image as opposed to Rand's complex compositions. Bass had a remarkable ability to reduce messages to powerful, simple photographic images, which then enabled viewers to interpret the content immediately. These forms were often cut from paper with scissors or drawn freely with broad brush strokes. Like many designers, Saul Bass frequently employed the technique of the fused metaphor. The New York Film Festival poster clearly and succinctly integrates the ideas of international travel, signified by the suitcase shape and the baggage tags that feature foreign flags, with films unmistakably depicted by the snippet of the film strip that forms the shape of the suitcase. 
Remnants of the Bauhaus influence can be detected in some subtle ways. The entire composition uses the boundaries of the page, but leaves an almost mathematically precise quarter of white space in the center. The arrangement is rescued from being too static by the colorful baggage tags on the lower right that balance the intricate texture of the typography, which is set in the Bauhaus tradition of flush left, ragged right. The broad black rectangle gives the image solid gravity, but the series of white rectangles along the top and bottom edges, as well as its imprecise hand-cut shape, all work together to lighten the overall mood. Similarly, his poster for the San Francisco Film Festival takes that film strip and subverts its impact by placing it vertically in the background as a field on which to display the text floating at the top, and then grounding it with a series of flags that communicate the concept of international. When fused, the two symbols read together and tell the story without needing to read the copy. In 1955, Bass created the first comprehensive design program unifying print and media graphics for a film, Preminger's The Man with the Golden Arm. His poster is made of cut paper and hand-drawn typography, and the result is one of the most famous movie posters in history. The film's director and producer, Otto Preminger, was so impressed with the design that he commissioned Bass to create the film's title sequence as well. The title sequence from The Man with the Golden Arm is a landmark in film and design. Not only was it unusual for a graphic designer to get involved with a film, up to this point, film titles were mostly ignored by the audience, if they were shown at all. Saul Bass changed all that as his title sequence concisely and imaginatively communicated the themes of addiction and humiliation that were at the center of the film's story, simultaneously catching the audience's attention as much as the film itself. The animated white bars joined together against a black background, eventually forming the jagged arm shape at the center of the poster. At the end, the fingers reappear, breaking up the text of the director's name, which is kind of an aggressive symbol of dominance. Preminger hired Bass to design unified graphic materials for all of his films, including logos, theater posters, advertisements, and more film titles. Bass revisits the theme of the arm as a symbol of power in the graphics for Preminger's film Exodus in 1961. Exodus is essentially a story about Israel's struggle to become its own nation in the years following the horrors of the Holocaust. The arm is inverted this time, reaching upward, brandishing a weapon just out of reach of the grasping arms and hands around it. Fire appears to not only engulf the figures, but the entire poster as flames reach outside the blue field into the poster's white border. The themes of struggle, heroism, and violence are clearly expressed without being too overwhelming. They're emotional without being super cheesy. From this beginning, Bass became acknowledged as the master of the film title, 
Before long, directors and producers like Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder were enlisting Bass's service for their powerful visual metaphors, their distinctive aesthetic, and his ability to deliver designs in a multitude of formats. In this poster for Love in the Afternoon, Bass again uses humor to suggest an idea that might be just a little too risque for the general public of the time. The poster doesn't show a literal image of people engaged in an illicit activity, but rather Bass suggests playful misbehavior with a hand closing the blind, which would be the first step if anyone were to have an affair in the afternoon. The Vertigo poster goes beyond the metaphor by inviting the audience to share the sense of falling with the dizzying optical illusion of an intricate spiral that swallows the figures in the center. It's the kind of visual device that includes the audience, potentially even causing the viewer to feel a bit unsteady. In the corresponding title sequence, the illusion reappears, zooming and twirling, followed by other dizzying illusions. If a viewer didn't get a sense of the film's mood and plot before the film started, it certainly wasn't for lack of visual communication. Even beyond his motion media creations, Saul Bass produced the kind of design-to-audience interaction that designers today strive to achieve. Bass was a pioneer in visual communication. The success of his posters and titles forever changed the way Hollywood and audiences thought about movie graphics. As discussed in our lecture on American modernism, editorial design enjoyed a revolution in the 1940s as art directors gained more control over their designs and began incorporating the ingenious photography, design principles, and techniques of the Bauhaus masters. Alexei Brodovich and Sippy Pinellas continued to add their contributions, inspiring a new generation of New York designers like Leo Leone, an art director for Fortune, who gave the magazine a unique identity, largely through his innovative integration of photography, typography, and a variety of historical design styles. In addition, he served as Olivetti's design director in America and was co-editor of Print Magazine from 1955 until 1959. Otto Storch, who was a student of Brodovich, joined the McCall's Corporation as the assistant art director for Better Living and in 1953 was named art director of McCall's, where he applied his philosophy of editorial design that idea, copy, art, and typography should be inseparable. Typography was designed to lock tightly into the photographic image. Headlines became parts of illustrations, and type was warped or bent or even became the illustration. Henry Wolfe studied directly under Brodovich, becoming the art director of Esquire in 1953, where he redesigned the magazine's format, placing greater emphasis on white space and large photographs. When Brodovich retired, Wolfe replaced him at Harper's Bazaar. There, Wolfe experimented with typography and implemented his vision of the cover, a simple image conveying a strong visual idea, 
such as the Americanization of Paris, which was signified by a packet of instant red wine, satirizing the spread of American technology, customs, and conveniences. His cover for a catalog on an AIJ exhibition of paperback covers is typical of his imaginative visual communication solutions, showing the viewer a realistic tear that reveals the word paperback, which is, of course, exactly what it is. Alvin Lustig was, like Saul Bass, a native of Los Angeles, who'd had a good bit of success and recognition even before the international style reached the U.S., He didn't truly adopt the style, but considered himself a born modernist, and in truth, his design style can be used as a measure of the evolution of American design from realism to abstraction. Lustig applied his design methodology to album covers and book designs for a New York publisher. His solutions incorporated symbols that captured the essence of the contents, as on this cover for 27 Wagons Full of Cotton by Tennessee Williams, on which a magnolia flower is brutally nailed to rough wooden siding to symbolize the violence and hatred behind the civilized facade of human affairs. Even after his migration to New York, Lustig continued to inject some California sensibilities into his designs. This cover of Fortune features a prism of sunny rainbow bands overlaid with a seemingly random arrangement of two- and three-dimensional elements. The aggressively spiky pincushion forms a focal point while drawing a curvy thread toward itself. The string reverses color as it passes through a flat black square, almost as if its six beats are being x-rayed. The whimsical curlicue at the top nudges the magazine title, a cheeky kind of an element that adds a little bit of humor to soften the rest of the arrangement. Bradbury Thompson's incredible promotional books for the paper company West Vaco Inspirations demonstrated a thorough knowledge of printing and typesetting, combined with an adventurous spirit of experimentation. These covers integrate 18th and 19th century engravings, uh, as well as overprinting to create depth and texture, a mixture of organic and geometric forms and patterns, collage, experimental printing techniques, and asymmetrical typography with classical American images and themes. Large, bold shapes were used to bring graphic and symbolic power to the page. Singular letter forms, darkroom effects on photography, and the tools of print production, such as the halftone screen or the four-color process plates, were design elements in his visual vocabulary. During the 60s and 70s, Thompson then turned increasingly to a more classical approach to book and editorial design. He started focusing on readability, formal harmony, and the use of old-style typefaces. Alex Steinweiss, a former student of modernist Joseph Binder, is widely credited with being the inventor of the album cover design. As the art director of Columbia Records, he searched for visual forms and shapes that would express the music that he was designing for. 
His approach to spatial organization was a little informal, although this 1942 album cover does reveal some distinctly constructivist influences, but that was more in keeping with the power and the somber theme of the album itself. Design elements were typically placed on a field with a casual balance that sometimes would border on a random scattering of forms, which might include cut paper, hand lettering, photographs, and illustrations. His collage style, although structured in its more classical arrangement, brightened up a bit on the album cover of Ludwig van Beethoven's Symphony No. 5, and then loosened up even further to reflect the springy, chaotic brightness of jazz notes on the sleeve of André Kostelinets' Music of Cole Porter LP. His skill at communicating subject matter through collage and apparent chaos reached beyond music to posters and editorial design. This poster for a visual communication exhibition acknowledges design as a deeply human and complex method of communication on many levels, mental, physical, and emotional. His cover for an issue of modern packaging that focused on the technology of aerosol features colorful textured triangles that lead the viewer to the spray can in the center where the meaning of the triangles that symbolize the shape of aerosol spray suddenly becomes clear. In the late 1960s, factors including television, public concerns over the Vietnam War, environmental problems, and the rights of minorities and women produced a need for a wider variety and different types of publications. A new, smaller format breed of periodicals emerged to address the interests of specialized audiences, such as New York, an independent city magazine, as well as print and communication arts, which both spoke to a growing nation of designers and are still considered a staple of the practice today. Among the editorial art directors who helped shape the viewpoints and philosophies of these publications were B. Feitler, Mike Salisbury, and Dugald Sturmer, who left a studio job in Texas in 1965 to return to his native California and become art director at Ramparts, the journal of record for 1960s protests. Ramparts was characterized by consistent classical times Roman typography, set in two columns per page, and full-page illustrations or photography. The December 1967 cover created a serious scandal as it appeared like Sturmer and his three colleagues were burning their draft cards in protest of the Vietnam War. All four of them were almost indicted on conspiracy charges. B. Feitler at Ms., the Journal of the Women's Movement, had an original approach to typography and design and created vitality through the use of diverse typographic styles, scale, and bold colors. Her approach depended not on consistency of style, but on a finely tuned ability to make appropriate choices uninhibited by current fashion or standard typographic practice. She was really not afraid to kind of strike out on her own and stick her neck out design-wise. In December's 1972 cover, Feitler makes a strong point with just a small revision of the traditional peace on earth, goodwill toward men greeting, proclaiming this untraditional take with a bright pink instead of red 
and a neon rather than traditional Kelly green color scheme. Direct, uncompromising, and completely devoid of ornamentation or imagery. A number of trends, the conceptual approach to cover design, the role of art director expanding into editorial concepts, and the growing taste for nostalgia and pop culture, all dovetailed in the work of Mike Salisbury. He utilized commonplace Western-type artifacts to capture a feeling of popular California culture, and the element of surprise brought visual vitality to Rolling Stone, a rock and roll newspaper turned tabloid magazine. His freewheeling design approach influenced the layout of many popular, specialized, and regional periodicals for more than a decade. Typographic trends in the 50s and 60s brought new approaches to graphic design. Jean Federico spearheaded figurative typography, a playful direction taken by New York graphic designers in which letter forms became images, such as the perfectly round Futura O's that function as both the text and bicycle wheels in Federico's liberating ad for Women's Day. Often, the visual properties of the words themselves, or their organization in space, were used to express an idea. In Don Eggensteiner's tonnage advertisement, for example, the word tonnage takes on a connotative meaning as it crashes down into the text below, and the rotated type takes advantage of reading patterns to reinforce the top-to-bottom flow toward the body copy. Another typographic trend that began in the 1950s was a renewed interest in 19th century decorative and novelty typefaces, which had been rejected due to the influence of the modern art movement. Robert M. Jones, the art director of RCA Victor Records and the founder of Gladhand Press, inspired this renewal by means of the graphic ephemera produced at the press and his record album designs which incorporated wood type. Phototypography, the setting of type by exposing negatives of alphabet characters to photographic paper, became commercially viable in the United States in 1936, when the firm Photolettering was established, although it still took several decades uh, for it to replace metal type completely. A major advantage to phototypography was the reduced costs of producing new typefaces. During the 1960s, the expansion of phototypography was accompanied by new designs and reissues of old designs, including Victorian typefaces. The new technology brought about a proliferation of type designs that rivaled the increased production of the Victorian era. This specimen book, designed by John Alcorn for Headliners Process Lettering, reintroduced 19th century typefaces as phototype, just as graphic designers were rethinking the value of supposedly outmoded type forms. Headliners International was a phototype supplier founded in New York City in 1954. Along with typefaces from other foundries, headliners produced some of their own designs, as well as film reproductions of wood and metal type, and extensions of other existing fonts. 
This was just one in a series of inventive and creative marketing programs headliners produced to inspire and energize art directors and designers to see new applications and possibilities in the use of photo-modified headline type. These promotions all became long-lasting paper reference tools for creative professionals, many of whom safeguard their copies over the years due to the unique presentation and engaging content. Herb Lubalin, who was hailed as the typographic genius of his time, defined the aesthetic potential of phototypography. He abandoned traditional typographic rules and practices and looked at characters of the alphabet as a means of giving visual form to a concept or message. Lubalin explored the creative potential of type through typograms, which were visual typographic poems in which concept and visual form merge. An example is his mother and child logo, in which the ampersand enfolds and protects the child in a visual metaphor for motherly love. Lubalin intensified the printed image to achieve impact and expressed content by experimenting with the elastic and dynamic qualities of phototypography, including tight letter spacing, word spacing, and letting, condensing, expanding, touching, and overlapping characters, and enlarging and reducing type to extreme scales. In his opinion, it was necessary sometimes to sacrifice legibility to achieve maximum impact. Lubalin also made significant contributions to editorial design through his work for Saturday Evening Post, Eros, Avant-Garde, and UNLC. Avant-Garde, a lavishly visual periodical that published visual essays, fiction, and reportage, was one of Lubalin's most innovative achievements. The logotype he designed for this magazine was then developed into a family of sans-serif typefaces under the same name. In 1970, Lubalin, phototypography pioneer Edward Ronthaler, and typographer Aaron Burns founded International Typeface Corporation, or ITC, and began to publish a tabloid-sized journal, UNLC, designed by Lubalin to demonstrate and publicize ITC typefaces. Lubalin saw the designer's role as projecting a message from a surface using three interdependent means of expression, photography, illustration, and letter forms. The complex and dynamic design of UNLC had a major impact on typographic design of the 1970s. The defining ideas of the New York School, simplicity, honesty, humor, and intelligence, echo the American culture of the 1950s and the early 60s. These designers took the tenets of modernism and techniques of the European avant-garde and created a new language. This version of Bauhaus modernism had now matured into a confident and dynamic approach reflecting the values of the time and place, and creating a truly American form of design. This concludes our examination of the New York School, and as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email me at mgridley at ut.edu or send a text through WhatsApp at 813-436-3323.